Welcome to Coffee and Geography, where my guests and I geek out about the world and everything on it, discovering that we are all geographers in some way, shape or form. I'm your host, Kit, and my pronouns are they, them or she, her. So settle down with a brew, hit that subscribe or follow button and enjoy the listen. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Coffee and Geography. Um, Last week's episode, my bad. Uh, I sounded a little bit different than normal, sound a bit echoey, didn't I? And that's because I had the wrong microphone selected the whole time, and I didn't realise until editing, and I already done my conversation with Miney. Never mind, I hope I've got the right one selected now, <laughs> because I am joined by uh, Ellie Platt, and Ellie, I hope you can hear me loud and clear. <laughs> I can, yes, thank you very much. <laughs> How are you doing today? I'm really good, thank you. Yeah, enjoying the spring weather now that it's finally here. Yeah, yeah. So, folks, I'm, we're recording this on the eighth of April, so it's Easter Saturday, if you so wish. If uh, if that's your uh, that's the kind of thing you observe um, today here in South Norfolk, it's a little bit overcast and grey, but it's quite warm actually. Um, so it's about sixteen degrees Celsius. So it's, it's, it's sunny yeah, down where you are in London. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's about the same. About the same here. I had a nice sunny morning into the community cafe which was nice. lovely had our hot cross buns Ooh, yeah i haven't had my um my april hot cross bun yet oh missing a trick right i'm gonna have to get that sorted so to uh, introduce uh, ellie ellie platt is a costume maker and textile artist that's so cool who creates works of uh, wearable art and other embroidered installation using lost or discarded textiles her work focuses on the way we interact with our environment uh, and our relationship with our clothes she is passionate about sustainable fashion and vintage clothing but embarrassed about the size of her mending pile <laughs> yeah, i've got one as well maybe we'll talk about that later uh, she soothes her eco anxiety with local walks meditating on what the natural world is revealing to her i mean folks if that intro doesn't say that Ellie belongs on this podcast, I don't know what is. So Ellie, that is a wonderful, wonderful little uh, little bio of you. Oh, yeah. thank you very much. Yeah, I think I guess I didn't think of myself as a geographer or someone who was even sort of particularly like knowledgeable about geography. But mm. then when I started thinking about how my work sort of progressed over the last few years, like especially over the lockdown and the pandemic, I kind of realised how centered in my local geography my work is so yeah it's interesting how you can bring things back to the topic of geography even though you might not think that sustainable fashion or textile art has anything to do with geography sort of at first glance yeah and it's it's always the the problem that um us geography folks here in the United Kingdom have is that we're, we're such a broad brush. Um, and like, but like in most places, another place in the world, you know, they say geography is a very specific discipline. So when I talk to especially international folk, I say, um, oh, you know, come on a coffee shop. I don't know anything about geography. I was like, no, you're like a natural scientist. That's geography where we come from and all that kind of stuff. Um, but what you just said actually is, is absolutely perfect. You said, you know, the term local geography and, you know, everybody has a local geography. Everybody has a personal geography. So, in a sense, everybody is a geographer in that kind of se- in that kind of sense. Uh, but yeah, reading out that bio, I know we've got uh, geography teachers and educators like not screaming but tutting at their radio, or whatever they're listening on, and saying, "Ellie, how can you not describe yourself as a geographer after what kids just said?" <laughs> so you're most certainly a geographer. Um, 
Right. So you mentioned you went to the community cafe. Um, when you go to the community cafe, do you do you have uh, your go-to brew? Do you walk in there and say, can I have my usual? Or uh, do you mix and match your brew sometimes? What, what do you usually go for for your hot tipple? So community cafe is normally coffee provided by whoever's making the coffee that morning. Uh, sometimes there's some fresh mint tea, depending on which mm. time of year. But yeah, it was coffee this morning. And yep. for catcher bread for my first breakfast, and then followed up by a hot cross bun for second breakfast. <laughs> yeah, nice. Oh, hang on a minute, folks. That was a little. I don't know if Ellie did that deliberately, but that's a little teaser for something we're going to talk about a bit later. So I just want you to think. What Ellie just said there, you know, breakfast, second breakfast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know about those, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> we'll come back to that a bit later. Um, right. So you are, um, you said here that you've much of your art, uh, practice over the last three years has been connected in some way with the river one, uh, is it Wandle? Wandle? Yeah. River Wandle. You know, I'm, I'm from the, I'm from the north side of the river London, you know, River Thames in <laughs> London. So of course I pronounced that wrong. The river Wandle in, uh, southwest London. So cause you're, you're not too far away from Croydon. If I was to say some of their people might recognize. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Croydon is probably a good, yeah, good kind of, geographical point yeah yeah so uh, so yeah so tell us a little bit about um you know what you've been doing how 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 the river has been and the and the landscape around has been like speaking to you is it is it a place you know very very well or have you come from elsewhere in united kingdom and settled in this area yeah tell us a little bit about your connection to the the river wonder and your and your identity i guess yeah so i was born and brought up in west sussex about sort of 20 miles northwest of Brighton mm-hmm. so grew up um near the river Ada actually just sort of um on the outskirts of a village called Stenning uh, moved to London to go to university when I was 19 and then I've mostly stayed in London since then kind of moving around sort of various places trying to find wherever was cheap wherever you know my my friends or kind of nice flatmates were living uh, I moved to South London to Collier's Wood in 2010. So I guess kind of Tooting is the nearest sort of well-known okay. landmark to Collier's Wood. Yep. And that was where I kind of first discovered the River Wandle, which flows from um, two sources, one in Carshalton and one in Croydon, which are further south. And then it flows north through um, the boroughs of Merton and Wandsworth and then flows into the Thames at um, Wandsworth Town near the Ram, what used to be the Ram Brewery is probably a good sort of location for kind of, if anyone knows London, that's where the Wandle flows out into the Thames. So yeah, in 2018, I moved again further out of London to an area called Hackbridge, which is again sort of between Sutton and Croydon, um, still on the Wandle. I don't know whether that was deliberate. I think it probably was subconsciously. I don't think it was exactly in my, you know, sort of house searching criteria must be within right. sort of two minutes walk of the Wandle, but that was kind of what how I ended up. And yeah, all the way through the pandemic, um, I was furloughed for six months didn't have 
anything to do. I live on my own. So I just sort of started doing as much walking as I could, as much walking as I was allowed. And a lot of the time I would be following the Wandle Trail, which follows the length of the river. And as we were sort of allowed to kind of be out and about a little bit more and um, kind of have, you know, sort of more time for walking, maybe sort of visiting friends kind of at a, at a bit of a distance, um, started to kind of see more of my neighbours. And obviously we'd all be in our, in our flats kind of doing, mm. doing our own thing and kind of wondering what everyone else was up to. Yeah. And we thought, oh, it'd be really lovely if we had a little kind of art exhibition out on our communal field. Everyone could bring out anything that they'd been working on. We could all sort of share, you know, everyone else's um, sort of inspirations and, you know, sort of celebrate how creative we'd been at a time. Things are actually quite difficult for a lot of us. Mm. And um, my friend Janine had taken these amazing photos of... Uh, bras that she'd seen hanging up on a fence someone had obviously gone through a bag of discarded clothes thought it was hilarious that there were bras in there and hung them up sort of on a kind of chain link fence and we're all thinking you know this is this is really funny Janine had taken these amazing kind of very atmospheric photos and I was thinking oh wouldn't it be interesting to see if I could find some more kind of discarded clothes or textiles along the Wandle, especially because mm. the Wandle used to be a site for textile production. I think a lot of people would probably have heard of Liberties and William Morris, and they both okay. had uh, textile printing facilities on the River Wandle in the sort of late 19th and early 20th century. So I thought, well, I wonder what textiles are happening along the river wandle in 2020 so i got my litter picker and a couple of plastic bags and over the course of a couple of days i walked the length of the the river along the trail picking up whatever kind of textile rubbish i could find and ended up sewing it into I guess quilts is technically the wrong word because a quilt is meant to have a sort of insulating layer in between two outer layers of fabric. So I guess it's more of a wall hanging. But everything I found, I washed and stitched onto these wall hangings to kind of create these sort of panels of finds. I wanted to kind of celebrate these sort of discarded and lost objects by turning them into a quilt or a display it was kind of trying to suggest that these things were somehow precious and kind of worth saving or worth paying Mm. attention to sort of subverting our idea of what is rubbish when something becomes rubbish and can you reverse that process from rubbish into an item that people want to save wow oh that is just such a lovely oh i've just got so many geographical connections and things going through my head now um so the first thing the first thing i thought about was when you mentioned about the history of the textiles in the area and as as you were talking i was trying to load up so i have access here to some old old maps old walnut survey maps 
and uh, I'm just kind of like I'm doing a virtual walk along the the river and uh, I've got the 1890s map up and like you oh, can wow. cer- yeah you can certainly see um you know you, there's plenty of meal there are so many meals along that river there used to be you know I'm wondering if if they were attached to the textile factory because of course they you know they use the water a lot to to turn meals into weave the fabrics and things a um, lot of the a lot of the mills on the Wandle weren't necessarily weaving the fabric. Okay. A lot of them were processing fabrics that had come from elsewhere. So there were printing, a lot of printing um, facilities because they needed okay. the fresh water to wash each layer of the fabric after it had been printed. They also had um, dye mills so grinding um, items like Brazil wood and logwood, which were shipped over from South America in the 16th and 17th centuries, huh. they were ground into very strong dark coloured dyes. So like a dark maroon or a kind of dark sort of almost purple. There were also um, leather mills. So they would use the... Um, the flow of the water to turn machines that would pound the leather to kind of soften it. And we also had textile bleaching grounds along sort of on the banks of the Wandle. So you would wet your um, unbleached linen or calico, you'd drag it out onto these textile bleaching grounds and there'd be sort of small channels cut around the... um, the fields you'd spread your undyed fabric with it was some sort of horrible before bleach was invented it was some sort of horrible mixture of kind of pigeon poo and lye or something and you'd spread <laughs> it all over the fabric and use the sun to kind of bleach the fabric huh. and then wash it all off in these these channels next to the river so a little bit more as nature intended, but yeah, not not yeah. Um, so yeah, so looking at okay, I'm I'm now I'm now trying to see if I can picture this history. So what I'm looking at, so if you go around the Thames, uh, and then you go you know round Embankment down there, and then past Battersea Park, and then you come to the entrance, um, the confluence between the Thames and the Wandle, and what I've noticed is that. A lot of the wandle has been straightened and and into canals, so you don't have to go too far south from the confluence of the Thames when it is very straight in places. Mm. Um, and so yeah, so so now I'm picturing like maybe, I mean whether this exactly happened or not, I don't know, but I'm I'm picturing like these barges of textiles that have come from South America coming down the wandle, and then you've got um, you come to Mitcham. And on this 1890s maps, you've got mills everywhere. And that is where currently the Beddington Corner Industrial Estate is. Or whatever. Yeah, that's actually, that's actually Mitcham Junction. to me. Yeah. yeah. Mitcham Junction Station and the gravel workings, 100 Acre Bridge, the sports park, the sports ground, the hospital. So that was where there's a bunch of mills. So, wow. Okay. That's yeah. just... That's amazing. The, the, it's quite interesting. The uh, Wandle was never a good river for any kind of boats to go mm. on because it's actually 
quite shallow. Okay. And it's quite a steep river. You don't sort of really notice it as you're traveling along it, but actually you are traveling downhill sort of from Croydon and Carshalton towards the Thames. So anything that was being delivered up the Thames would probably have come to the mills um, sort of overland. Okay. And then it was actually the speed of the river and in fact the clarity of the water that were the two sort of most highly prized kind of qualities that made the Wandle so good for um, kind of textile production. And even back in the 1850s, there were complaints being made by um, sort of printing places or places that wanted to use fresh water from the Wandle in Wandsworth, which is quite far downstream. Okay, they yep. were complaining about the places upstream that were pumping out, you know, various kind of dye stuffs and the mordants that are used to fix the dyes, which have always been substances that are quite toxic, you know, in terms of kind of mm. drinking water or um, sort of the creatures in the river. Right. Yeah, because Wandsworth is quite a densely populated area. Even even in the in the late nineteenth century, it was quite densely populated, and I can see, yeah, that like they were clustering around, you know, towards the confluence of the Thames and the Wandle. Yeah, um, and you call you you didn't think you were a geographer, Ellie? That was brilliant. <laughs> that was so so cool. Oh, but um, right, okay. So try to think because like we could talk we talk forever on this one particular thing, but. Um, so you you also said about you know you're you're really really interested in the parallels between the environmental human impact of of all this kind of stuff. So so you went you said you went round you walked along the wonder and you tried to pick all this discarded stuff. Um, when you do this kind of stuff, are you is it because you mentioned about you know eco anxiety and stuff like that? Are you doing this to kind of see if there's any way you can promote more sustainable use of clothing or or raise awareness of how neglectful we are with clothing so when so when you're doing this walk you're picking up this stuff you're creating this art or this you know your your uh your mosaic or mosaic you know what is the core purpose what are you, are you trying to get a message out about how we're treating um textiles and clothing there's yeah there's definitely a sort of strong i guess kind of environmental and social message in my work so one of the things I've kind of realized you know being part of a kind of community that talks about sustainable fashion a lot online is that there's a lot of pushback when it comes to the idea of sustainable fashion mm. um, part of this is because fast fashion brands have very cleverly positioned themselves as quote unquote affordable fashion. So yes. kind of pretending they're doing a social good by selling very cheap clothes. Whereas actually the people, I mean, clothing poverty does exist in this country. The people who are in clothing poverty are not the people who are spending 200 pounds in one go for a Shein haul or a Boohoo haul. Mm. And what people in clothing poverty actually need is good quality sort of everyday practical clothes that you can wear for a long time that will withstand multiple washes that are sort of stylish you know for a, a number of years rather than something trend driven whereas actually when I go around 
um, charity shops and I see, you know, sort of what's new with tags, a lot of it is extremely poor quality mm. party clothes for te- for essentially teenagers. So the kind of the fast fashion argument that they're creating this sort of egalitarian model of creating clothing is you know it's quite easy to to dispel Mm. but I think also people get very defensive about fast fashion clothing in a way that people wouldn't get defensive about say um, single-use plastic because a single-use plastic water bottle does it's not something they've chosen as a sort of signifier of their identity Whereas a piece of clothing is often very much associated with the way we see ourselves. We're choosing a T-shirt because it has the logo of a band or a show we love or something. We're choosing clothes because we want them to say something about ourselves. And I think when people might hear a message that what they're saying is, I support unfair working practices through these clothes they think well no that's not what I'm trying to say at all and people can become quite defensive quite upset so one of the things that I try to do especially with the wonder wardrobe is to kind of connect with people in a sort of light kind of humorous way and sort of put put a message across to them often in a situation where they're not expecting it so it might be kind of at a local craft show or something people aren't thinking people aren't kind of getting defensive because I'm yelling at them that the clothes they bought are bad and they should feel bad they're sort of seeing a blanket with a load of odd socks stitched onto it and kind of thinking what's this what's this about it's quite funny it's quite humorous and then the message I sort of try to get across as the kind of initial talking point is would you go back for clothes that you've lost if not why not and are our clothes so cheap and plentiful that we've kind of lost our emotional attachment to them and actually it sort of really gets people talking people often tell me really lovely stories about clothes that mean a lot to them So they'll either start telling me about what they're wearing at that moment or something they've owned in the past that means a lot to them. They'll tell me about their parents who mended clothes. One woman told me about the fox box in her local library, which is where you take odd items of clothing that ends up in your garden you suspect that a fox has probably dropped it off as it goes through all the gardens in the neighbourhood. <laughs> so you it. take it to the library and hope that someone comes along and picks it up. <laughs> I love so that. Yeah, it's kind of a nice way for people to mm. sort of open up about their clothing stories and maybe start to think, oh, actually, my clothes do mean a lot to me. Maybe I would go back if someone had knitted my child a hat and we realised mm. we'd lost it. Yeah. That's so much of what you said really does speak a lot of truth to me as well. I mean, um, 
clothing and my identity, especially as I've been exploring my trans identity, has been a huge, a huge part of my social transition journey. It really, really has um, the clothes that I wear. But what's really interesting is that the intersectionality between my identity and how I and how I uh, project that identity is very, very intertwined to my identity as a geographer and someone who's very, very uh, keen to be sustainable with their clothing. Mm. So when you mentioned about charity shops and stuff like that, it's like, yeah, you know, I, that is my go-to thing. I, I've, I think out of, if you take my wardrobe, I would say like 95% of the stuff in my wardrobe is either secondhand or mended, pre-loved, however you might, might want to call that. You know, everything I'm wearing right now is none of this is, is quote, quote, brand new. But I, I, I'm aware that quite a lot of what I do have that is secondhand did originate from the fast fashion process. So, um, but yeah, when you say about things like identity, it, it really is important. It's like when 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 I was brave enough to wear, you know, um, a really nice dress out for once. I went to a war, an award ceremony. I had this really beautiful long satin dress, and I've always wanted to wear something like that out to some really special occasion. And it meant a lot to me, and it meant a lot to me. And the people who know me very very well, is, is, you know, just, just didn't think, oh, that's a nice dress kit. They said to me, not only are you wearing, you know, that 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 you're wearing that dress and it is beautiful on you, but that dress is very much wearing you as well. You are beaming. You, you know what I mean? So it's, yeah. it was kind of like enhancing my identity and things like that. Um, I yeah. Think it's so it's so important to be able to have those experiences. And that's kind of what I want for mm. everyone to, in terms of their wardrobe. I want everyone to be able to, to derive joy from what they're wearing I know the I don't think the fashion industry has served most people very well for a very long time. Mm. There's always a pressure to buy something new to feel dissatisfied with what you already have. The fashion industry has been extremely excluding of plus size people. Yeah. It's extremely yeah. gendered into kind of quote-unquote menswear and quote-unquote ladieswear <laughs> yeah, indeed. it's been sort of historically extremely racist just using white models white bodies as fit mm. models and obviously like exploiting people of color in countries in the global south yeah so you know i would my kind of utopian vision is some sort of fashion industry where everyone has clothes that they love that make them feel like their authentic self yeah. away from pressure of social media or the fashion industry to look a certain way. And those clothes could be made with love by people who are paid a fair wage, treated like, like the skilled craftspeople that they are. Yeah, I think we, you know, we're still a long way off from that, but I can see so many brands that are making those steps towards, yeah, kind of giving people this kind of de, I guess, decentralized kind of fashion system that mm. would benefit everyone. Yeah, and some some of our most treasured items are actually um so my 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 beautiful wife has like 
during COVID, she took up crocheting. Oh, fantastic! As one of her one of her one of her things, um, and she's done everything from uh, she made me some fox mittens, kind of like well, like yes, kind of like with you know thumb holes and and like and I wore them out completely, you know, you know they they got so hard, but that's right. But then she just like tried to reuse bits and, and patch it up as much as she can, and a, and a hat as well with a little fox ears on the top of it. Oh, um, but wonderful. not only has she done that, but she's got. I mean, they're, they're scattered around because the kids have had hold of them. They're scattered around, but like crocheted, like uh, Studio Ghibli characters. So we've got crocheted Totoro, a crocheted, um, you know, blue and white Totoro. We've got a crocheted No Face, you know. Um, oh, that's fantastic. And yeah, yeah, and the kids actually do treat them with a hell of a lot more respect than the, than the, the, you know, you've got fast fashion than the, than the rapidly generated toys, which they just smash around all over the place. You, you do see that mentality. And yeah, I've got um, clothing, um, you know, that has been handed from close friends. Uh, you know, the things that have been too big for my wife, it's given me or my girlfriend's given me, you know, and I've just so much more precious over those things. So I think yeah. you can really feel the love in either things that someone said, oh, I'm not wearing this. I think you might really like it mm. because someone's thought about you. They thought about your personal style, sort of what you might get from the garment that they're not. Yeah. And I mean, I just love, I just love a charity shop rummage, a clothes swap rummage, yeah. a vintage shop rummage, anything. Yeah. It's kind of the, the thrill of the chase for me with, fashion now or not even fashion it's more sort of clothing I'm not really looking to follow trends I'm looking to find things where I think I would be excited to wear that I would be thrilled to put that on in the morning that would really make me feel like me yeah like yeah. the person that I the you know the person that I want to show to the world rather than a person who is conforming to fast fashion micro trends or mm -hmm. a stereotype of what someone who is my age my size my sort of socio-economic status should look like yeah yeah and I guess in a way it's um there are so many there are so many different ways of and you mentioned you know the kind of you mentioned all the problems with with regards to how things could be very very racist I mean of course we've got that we've got that ridiculous furore about the the uh the trans woman who has been modeling nike's um sports bra you know and there's such a hoo-ha over that for example um and then you've got it's it's another way of, of of restricting identity you know of homogenizing human identity it's like no if you're this gender this person whatever whatever you must look a certain way you must you know you've all got to follow the same trends and it's just there's too much beauty and diversity in in the world and the human race to restrict ourselves and categorize ourselves even by clothing. Absolutely. Fast fashion especially wants to put everyone in a box. Hi folks, a chance for you to recharge your brew, but also a polite prod to remind you that it's so easy to support this podcast. Simply liking, sharing, rating and reviewing means that it will get on more people's radar. Also, there are a few links down in the description which may be of mutual benefit. Please do check them out.
when I've been on fast fashion websites looking at um, garments that I found for a recent project that I found either brand new with tags in charity shops or in clothes swaps, I sort of wanted to see if I could find what the original cost was on the website, how they were originally being marketed. And scrolling through these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of products, they're all extremely similar. When you right. sort of boil it boil it down to their kind of essence, they're either an oversized garment or a stretchy garment, because that way you don't have to get a perfect fit on someone. And there might be kind of little tweaks with, you know, a neckline, a sleeve length, a hem length. But essentially, it's all the same thing. Hmm. And I feel like I have a real dislike of dress codes as well. This kind of idea that, again, you have to fit into a box. It's this sort of excluding people by kind of, if you know, you know, like saying, yeah smart casual and expecting people to be able to exactly interpret these two words that do not mean the same thing (laughs) (laughs) into a a social situation it's absolutely this kind of if you're in the in crowd you'll know what that means and you'll have Mm. the right outfit and if you don't correspond to society's kind of definition of an acceptable body shape or an acceptable gender presentation then suddenly you're excluded because you cannot conform to this certain dress code in a way that the establishment kind of deems Mm. acceptable yeah and some people say that 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 is that is you know oppression of power it's one it's another way of control in a way absolutely and which is why having your own identity through your clothing is rebellious and i can and as we've already as as you know we have a lot of teachers who are listening to this podcast and i can guarantee you is that well i'm speaking for myself but i do know plenty of teachers who don't give a monkey's if students are coming in wearing uh, earrings or a bracelet or something like that and actually get so annoyed as like, oh, I can't, I have to, this uniform code, I have to enforce this uniform code and like be the bad guy to these kids. And I'm really, I don't give a monkey's, you know, they actually look pretty cool with those earrings on, you know, who cares, you know, but you know, that's just, but anyway, I'm, I'm getting on my soapbox now. Um, I want to do this thing before we, before we start running out of time. And that's uh, a, a kind of different version of jog on, which is uh, usually when you, you pick, uh, you've got five random words and you kind of pick ones, which ones to talk about. But I've got a, a, a textiles wheel to spin, you know? Uh, and so I've got, let me tell you what's on this wheel. So we have, uh, is it chiffon or chiffon? How do you pronounce that one? Chiffon. Chiffon, right. So we've got chiffon, cotton, crepe. I didn't even know that was a textile. I thought it was a pancake, but anyway. Um, <laughs> denim, lace, leather, linen, satin, silk, synthetics, which is like nylon, polyester, blah, blah, blah. Uh, velvet and wool. So I'm going to spin this three times. Okay. Very exciting. Um, and so let's do that. Where's the sound going to come out? So I don't know if anyone can hear that out of my headphones. Anyway. All right. I guess it's chiffon. Actually, it was the first thing that came off. So, okay. I'll give you uh, a little bit of time. You can have a, a minute or two. So tell me a little bit about that textile. And uh, have you used it at all? Is there any sustainable message we can communicate from it? Is it environmentally friendly? So, um chiffon is actually sort of the weave of a fabric 
So it can be made out of different textiles. You can have a, it would normally be, you would have a synthetic chiffon, so a polyester chiffon, or you would have a silk chiffon. Mm. So that's a more natural fabric. Polyester is a synthetic that's made from plastics, which is derived from oil. The silk chiffon would come from the silk moth. Um, chiffon has a, it's a textured weave. So very, very fine. If you can imagine, very, very soft, floaty. You can see right through it. Uh, if you hold it up to the light, it's very kind of transparent, sort of gauzy. Um, it's a, yeah, I would say it was a, especially a silk chiffon would be a luxury fabric. Right. So you can imagine it being used as sort of drapes on wedding dresses, on occasion wear, on your sort of red carpet kind of gowns. It's much more, it's a quote unquote ladies wear okay <laughs> fabric so it wouldn't be used in more masculine tailoring or suiting you could maybe have a sort of blouse of soft blousy shirt made of chiffon but yeah it's very much a kind of a sort of luxurious slinky fabric it's got kind of a matte texture feel so it's not shiny Ooh. but it's very yeah very see-through transparent translucent if you imagine sort of the a 1920s evening dress, you would maybe have a chiffon base layer with all your little beads oh, kind of embroidered right, on it. it. And then you'd, you'd shimmy into the ballroom at whatever country <laughs> estate you're having your wild party at. So it sounds, it sounds like they might have used it quite a fair bit in Downton Abbey. Yes, it would definitely <laughs> be used in Downton Abbey. <laughs> <laughs> okay that's shift on everybody right i'm gonna let's uh, go for the next the next spin and it's come up with satin so uh, how um tell us a little bit about satin and so again yeah. satin is a weave of fabric so you can get again you can get polyester satin you can get silk satin i'm learning something and... here aren't you? <laughs> so you can ascent you can weave these fabric finishes out of different yarns, different threads. And what you will normally find, so I'll quickly just explain what satin So a satin is a shiny fabric. Mm -hmm. It has one, the back of the satin would be normally a matte feel. And then the front of the satin would be shiny, it's soft, it's sort of smooth, to the touch you would describe it as silky although it can be made not all satin mm -hmm. is silk you can buy silk satin you can buy polyester satin not as good quality as the silk it doesn't have the same drape the same fall so you couldn't create these beautiful you'd kind of think of like a satin gown as one of those sort of 1930s yeah. kind of slinky sort of golden age of Hollywood kind of bias cut. Which gaps. is what I wore for that award ceremony, actually. Oh, it was a blue. fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so a, a good quality version of one of these gowns would be made from a silk satin. 
And then a cheaper version would be in a polyester satin. Mm. And you, you can get different qualities of polyester satin, but it's not, at the end of the day, it's a synthetic fabric with, without the breathability or the drape of yeah. a natural fibre. Okay. I'm going to have to look at the tag of that dress again now because uh, what kind of... Uh, <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. It's, no, it's intrigued me. I mean, I, I felt like a million dollars in it, to be fair. And I get, did get it second, you know, I got it I got it second hand, hand me down. So uh, it's guilt, guilt-free in that respect. So don't you worry. I'm just intrigued now. That's that's really cool. Right. One more spin. And then uh, there's one little thing I want to chat to you about. So then it's then it's crepe, which I'm glad came up, actually, because I do want to... Ah. I don't want people to know the difference between crepe the fabric and crepe, crepe that, that we <laughs> Stick in our frying pans. <laughs> so the pronunciation is slightly different. It's okay. crepe. The fabric crepe. is crepe. So we're extending the e. Um, yep. So crepe is also a weave. You can get it in <laughs> okay. different. Um, actually, you can you can create a crepe from a lot of different fibers. You can have a silk crepe. You can have a polyester crepe again. Yep. You can have a viscose crepe. Viscose uh, might be an interesting one to talk about briefly because it kind of straddles a sort of awkward gap between synthetics and natural fibres. Okay. So viscose is derived from plant material so it would cover things like tensile, which is made from beech, I believe, or mm. um, other sort of plant. So you essentially use this plant fibre, but you have to treat it with a lot of chemicals to create viscose, the fabric. It became very popular at the turn of the 20th century as it was originally marketed as artificial silk. Right. before um, polyester and oil-derived synthetic fabrics became very popular. This was sort of one of the the first, um, viscose was one of the first sort of quote-unquote artificial fabrics. Um, yeah, so you can also have a wool crepe, which makes very kind of sort of lightweight but, luxurious anything from a sort of evening wear to ladies wear suiting almost you can get crepes in a huge range of mm. weights as well obviously depending on the yarn that they're spun from now, i've just so, come across a picture of a, a morning bonnet from the oh, 1880s yes. so this was another this is a different crepe that we perhaps wouldn't recognize today in the same in the same way as if we you know were to feel the silk crepe of a wedding dress or the wool crepe of a smart skirt suit a victorian crepe was almost more like the texture of crepe paper so if you think of the kind of crafting see paper, now that i recognize yeah yep <laughs> it's the same it's got the same sort of concertinaed um or sort of crunkled look to it but the Victorian crepe was very stiff, whereas most crepe weaves now are going to be quite soft, quite drapey. There was a reason for this. Crepe was used in Victorian morning wear, and the idea was 
that you would wear this very uncomfortable dress or sort of gown with a crepe bonnet to show hmm. how sad you were about normally about your husband's death. Okay. So when men were in mourning for a wife, sorry, again, it's a very heteronormative Indeed. sort of mourning <laughs> customs in Victorian times. Yes. If men were in mourning for their wife, they would wear a black armband for maybe a month. If women were in mourning for their husband, they could be required to wear black crepe for up to a year. I heard about this. And then you would gradually transition through sort of dark greys and dark purples. I think I heard this on the Guilty Feminist podcast a few weeks ago, actually. Yes, because they were talking, because they had an episode on, on death. And uh, yeah, that's where I heard it from. That's so yeah. interesting. How, how, the yeah. Victorian they- morning customs are so fascinating. <laughs> yeah. It's so bizarre. But now you also, but, 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 uh, crep, you know, crep now. I, of course, now I'm thinking back to primary school. Of course I've used the stuff. Yes. Okay. But, uh, wow, reconnecting uh, now back to old memories. Um, okay. We're, let's, uh, shift off. Thanks very much for that, for playing along with that. Um, come up with free weaves. I'm not, uh, that wasn't no, that planned. Was, <laughs> that was good fun. No, it's interesting as well for people who don't spend all of their time with, fabrics mm. to kind of know you know the difference between a, a yarn or a weave kind of different types of fabrics yeah so that you don't get caught out you know buying something that's been wrongly advertised knowledge online. is power right knowledge Absolutely. is power yeah right folks so um usually what will happen if we're 45 minutes in i go on to we are all joggers now but i can't i can't end this chat without this next bit right because both myself and ellie can geek out over this so uh, for spill the beans um ellie has um admitted very unashamedly that she is a lifelong fan of lord of the rings uh since her dad read the books since it was nine you know and yeah, yeah and my <laughs> and my uh, my you know we we do that to our kids my our eldest is uh about to turn nine and you know we've read the all of the hobbit and we're going to be moving on to lord of the rings very soon and uh and you're absolutely right when you say you you know talk you, you said um tolkien meticulously imagined a geography of the world so much of the plot is linked to J- tolkien's love and natural world his eco-anxiety i never really thought about tolkien having eco-anxiety but it does make sense when you think about it and his dislike of the industrialization and, and it idealized view of the british countryside now do you have um I'll, I'll reveal, folks, for you listening what it is. But have you ever come across this, Ellie? Have you ever I heard of it? Not. So this That's is very exciting. This is the Atlas of Middle Earth, right? And this is written by Karen Wynne Fonstad, and it's quite an old book, actually. So the first edition, or this is the revised edition, which came out in nineteen ninety one. I can't be no. Wait a minute. That was the yeah. That was the republished edition. It actually came out in seventy three, seventy seven, and seventy nine. So this the book was originally older than us. <laughs> oh wow! So that's around the same time. I have my dad's old editions of the Lord of the Rings books with kind yeah. of fabulously illustrated, kind of almost yep. psychedelic covers from the seventies. So I'm just showing Ellie everybody the uh, pages on Minas Tirith. Um, oh yes isn't that isn't that gorgeous and they recreated it so accurately yeah. for the films yes i think the films came out just as i was starting my 
no, just as I was finishing uh, my degree in costume making. And it was absolutely sort of a point where I thought, yes, this degree is everything that I wanted to do because now I could get to work on a Lord of the Rings film or, you know, something similar. I yeah. could get to make these incredible imaginative costumes. I could be part of, yeah, sort of re- kind of recreating these imaginary worlds as if they were real. So yeah. that's kind of, it just made me so excited to kind of start my career as a costume maker, start working with textiles and kind of really bring yeah sort of bring like imaginative clothing to life that, that is so amazing yeah i mean you've you've got to get hold of this early because it's um it's not just about you know you know it, it is a quintessential atlas folks you know if you think of an atlas that you might have in your geography classroom or something like that or you might have at home you know it's not just maps maps and maps you know it talks about <clears throat> you know how the hobbits migrated over middle earth how the dwarves migrated it talks about the great plague of the third age you know and uh, and it has has all the kind of stuff about that so it's not just about the geology and things like that but it talks about the weather the climate where well, it, temp- it attempts to um I mean, the person who wrote this basically, you know, made made the conclusion, which, you know, that it's fairly un, unrealistic, you know, this, <laughs> that, that Middle Earth would have come would have would have come about naturally. But then there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of magic. There's a lot of, of, of power going on. You know, people say that, yeah, OK, Mordor probably wouldn't have that peninsula of mountains yeah (laughs) but who was to say that the necromancer i.e sauron you know didn't lift them up from the earth and you know so we you you can you can have a suspension yeah exactly but it is really really good it's fantastic and it does try to explain we know why some you know why why the the eastern side of the of the um the white mountains have this certain climate, whereas the western are very more pleasant and green and it's really good it's really really good fantastic yeah so what is your um so geographically, then, what would you say is your favourite part of of the Lord of the Rings or uh, or any of Tolkien's work? If you could, you could say, oh, I would maybe maybe not just go to holiday there, but but that would be my place. That would be my surroundings. Where, where, where in Middle Earth would you find yourself home? I think I would really like to go to Ithilien. Okay, yeah. So describe just... to folks what Ithilien is for those who don't know. So in possibly the possibly in the two towers tolkien writes it's probably two or three pages a description of athelion which is this sort of i think it's quite a low-lying area and it sounds like there's just the most amazing kind of lush vegetation he talks about all these different herbs or it's as frodo and sam walk through it with Gollum. i think it's just before they meet faramir yeah and yeah tolkien is kind of writing this kind of love letter to sort of herbs and flowering plants and greenery and it just seems like just a kind of really amazing sort of idyllic kind of lush place like I just really love being kind of surrounded by greenery yeah I can see that I can see that I'm, I'm not saying I'm, I'm surprised by your choice but it, it wouldn't have been the thing that came to my my mind at the forefront 
you know I've, people who know lord of the rings might have said like hobbiton you know they might have said uh you know um oh, rivendell or something like that but you know ethelion that's a really interesting choice and now i'm thinking about it i'm thinking that that bit where you know Gollum is in the is down there and he's is in the forbidden pool you know and uh faramir and his uh and his folk i think are. it I think it seems interesting because it's one of the few points, sort of one of the few places in Lord of the Rings that is somehow simultaneously both wild and safe. Mm-hmm. So it's, I think, largely unoccupied. I think they go to kind of re, sort of resettle it at the end of Return of the King, sort of in one of the appendices, I think. Faramir and some people are going out to sort of live there kind of full time but I think at the point where the hobbits are journeying through it's kind of a piece of sort of no man's land between gone I think it's part of Gondor but it's kind of between like Minas Tirith and sort of Osgiliath and kind of the mountains of Mordor yeah so there's the map of Athelion. I think I've got that. There we before. go. Yeah. 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 So, uh, so it, it's, it looks like it's like, it's very hemmed in, it's, you know, between certain places, it's right on the edge of the mountains of Mordor. So they're reminded of this, of this uh, menace, the other side of the mountain right there, but it is, but it's, it's uh, just south of the dead marshes. And um, there's this page, which is absolutely brilliant folks. So you've got like a zoomed in uh, of the river of, um, which goes through um, Henneth Anun, and then you've got the falls, and there's a diagram of the waterfall. Look at that! Oh, wow. Cross-sectional <laughs> diagram of the waterfall. Um, which it's just so detailed. It talks about you know the cave behind the waterfall where they, where where people took refuge, and yeah, I think that seemed very enticing as as a small child as well to kind of have this sort of secret place that you could go to like a secret kind of little hideout yeah yeah that's what books do isn't it but it's fantastic. i'm glad we got to geek out over that that was so no, worth the extra really 10 minutes <laughs> and uh, actually funny funny we should say it's because um now that we move on to the final thing which is we are all geographers so last week's guest uh, hermione meow um came up with the word that she wants you to talk to for 30 seconds to try and link to geography or maybe your own perspective on it and would you believe it that you've mentioned lord of the rings the word that she came up for for you to talk for 30 seconds was magic <laughs> so if you want to go 30 30 seconds completely on about the magic in lord of the rings <laughs> anything like that you're more than welcome but yeah do you you can think you can riff for 30 seconds on the word magic oh, wow. for us whenever you're ready <laughs> take take us away i think i probably can yeah although magic seems to be a kind of fictional thing i think we can all conjure a lot of magic for ourselves if we want to we can kind of find magic in our daily lives whether it's looking really closely at nature and kind of seeing these incredible sort of natural forms thinking about if you live somewhere where the seasons thinking about how the seasons Mm. turn and each part of the natural world has a time when it comes alive a time when it fruits, a time when it rests, and kind of thinking how we can maybe make this magic a part of our daily lives, even if we're doing something very kind of humdrum, very ordinary, how we can think about, 
yeah, bringing natural magic into our lives, even if we maybe don't think of kind of witchcraft or magic as yeah. quote unquote real. Yeah, everything you, we, you can find magic in a lot of things, can't you? Oh, so, absolutely. I like that. Yeah, yeah, so lovely. Oh, thank you so much for that. So, um, but Ellie, you do get to come up with a word yourself for the person I speak to next time. So, do you have any anything in particular you want to hear someone else have a little uh, go for for a little while for thirty seconds or so? So, keeping in line with the textile theme <laughs> earlier, yep. I'm going to go for thread. Oh, that's a good one. That could take us in so many different directions, that one. Yeah. Okay, folks. So tune in next week when we we find out if my next guest, um, what they come up with the word thread. And is there anybody that you'd like to uh, give a shout out? I guess... I don't want to kind of say specific names because I'll probably leave them out <laughs> no, and then they'll be yeah, sad. <laughs> yeah, anyone that I've been collaborating with on art projects because it's honestly the most exciting and delightful thing. Having oh. an art community, whether it's people you just see online or people you see in real life, like a local artists group or, yeah, anyone who kind of shows an interest in your work as well or who wants to work alongside you wants to promote your work wants to kind of join in on your projects or bring their projects to you it's just it's just such a joy and it's what keeps me it's what kind of keep keeps me going when I think oh why am I even doing this Mm. I think well for my my community and for yeah for the kind of shared joy and love yeah oh that's cool that's really cool, and I, I honestly think you have one of the best Twitter handles. So tell, <laughs> tell it, so tell it, so tell everybody what your Twitter handle is, and, and you and give us a shout to your uh, your blogspot address as well. Yeah, so my well, my um, blogspot is take it up, wear it out, which is the same as my Instagram handle, and then because Twitter wouldn't give me enough letters, my Twitter yeah. is take it up, wear it. Yeah. But you would have had the out on the I end. I would have had the you, out on the end. If you could, yeah. <laughs> but you've got Instagram, you've got Twitter, just minus the out, and you've got takeitupwearitout.blogspot.com. And so please do check that out, folks. And please, 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 if you are a teacher and you teach about this kind of stuff, geography teacher or anything about stability, do check out Ellie's work because it is fantastic and you've got some nuggets that you can use. And I'm sure via social media, if folks want to swing you a question or two, then they can give you a shout. Absolutely. Come and slide into my dms and <laughs> ask me questions about lost socks along the one door <laughs> yes oh <laughs> uh, ellie i've had such fun talking to you uh, thank you so much for giving up some of your uh, well as we're recording easter saturday and uh yeah and please do keep in touch that'd be absolutely wonderful. wonderful thank you so much thank you so much for listening we hope you had fun If you haven't already done so, please subscribe so more stories and experiences can drop into your favourite podcast app. If you fancy being a guest or have any feedback, follow us on Twitter at CoffeeJogPod and send us a DM. Or you could email coffeeandjog at geogramblings.com. Until next time, keep geogging.